society. It was a group of uh, college students in Nazi Germany that watched what was happening around them and said, we have to do something. So they began publishing a newspaper, believing that if they would just make sure that everybody knows what's really happening, then ordinary, good-hearted Germans would, would stop this. And so they started publishing this newsletter, and not long after, the, the Nazis arrested them, put them on trial, and within three days killed them all. It's depicted in a movie called Sophie Scholl. And the idea that really motivated them was the same idea that motivated Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that I am a Christian and I am a German, and therefore I am responsible for Germany. It's the kind of thing that motivated Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was in the United States, to say, no, we have to stop what's happening back in Germany. And so he left the United States where he was safe, went back to Germany, was arrested, imprisoned, and then a few days before the end of the war was killed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Sophie Scholl and her brother and her friends, they really paid a really, really high cost for their discipleship. They basically, these are people that paid for their discipleship with their life. And we have story after story throughout history, and even stories now of Christians who pay this really, really high cost for their discipleship. But the, the question for each of us is, what is that cost? What is that cost? And what could motivate me to like give up everything? to follow Jesus? What is it that could make me say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus in the middle of this? These are the kinds of costs that you and I aren't paying where we're going, oh, wow, we might be imprisoned and killed right now. But it's the kind of cost that we have to count when as husbands we realize that God's call to us is to lay down our lives for our wives. We have to count the cost and say, is it actually worth it to obey God in laying my life down for my family? It's the same kind of cost that Some of you are having to count up as you look at at your workplace and you go, to stay in this workplace now, or maybe in the future to stay in this workplace, I'm going to have to start affirming and believing in and promoting things that the Bible calls wrong. Like all of us have these costs to count, young and old. It's the same cost that even as a child or as an adult, when we have to make an apology, we count up and go, is it worth worth the self-humiliation that it takes for me to apologize genuinely from my heart? So what is the cost to us to follow Jesus who says, blessed are the peacemakers when a family member swindles us out of money, cheating us out of an inheritance that it's rightfully ours. We have a cost that we have to give up if we're going to follow Jesus. And so right now, we're going to be looking to see what the Bible has to say about that. During most of the fall, we walked through the book of 1 Samuel all the way up to chapter 19, looking at the rise of Samuel, we're looking at God's first king, and then we began looking at this battle between David and Saul. Now we're going to spend February finishing off this series, 1 Samuel chapters 20 to 31, really looking at saying, what does God have to show us in the battle between these two kings? And today we're going to look at David his best friend Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king. And we're going to see what is it that could motivate a person like Sophie Scholl, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or like you and I to count the cost and pay the cost in discipleship. What is it that could actually motivate us to do that? So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you've got your Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible or your hands are full, 
You can follow along on the screen. We're going to read verses, chapter 20, verses 1 through 14. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant. For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will, will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let us go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that as we open your word, that you will help me to uh, preach it clearly, that you will help us to hear. Lord, and I pray that you will give us that motivation to count the cost of discipleship in following you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this story starts with David confronting his best friend. We can't miss the fact that David is the, the anointed future king of Israel. But the kingship of Israel is actually Jonathan's by right. We can't miss the fact that these are two rivals facing off. Jonathan is the son of the king, and normally the son of the king becomes the next king. And so God's next king, David, goes to Jonathan, his best friend, and says, your dad is going to kill me. And Jonathan says, no, it, it, it can't be like that, David. You've got to be wrong. I don't know anything about this. And so David helps Jonathan see this is actually a critical moment. Jonathan realizes what's going on, so they begin to make plans. Jonathan swears again, which he's already sworn in the past, that he is going to be faithful to David. Jonathan has transferred his loyalty from his dad and from his own kingdom to David. And he says, I, I promise you. So they make plans. Jonathan renews that promise of loyalty there. I love that he says, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. They renew that moment of loyalty and then they depart. Jonathan goes to this feast 
and David is not there. And then the second day, when David is not there, Saul goes, hey, what's going on? And just like David had said would happen, Saul blows up in anger. Saul gets so angry. Jonathan says, oh, he asked for permission. But Saul says, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Saul is brutal here. This is kind of cleaned up language right here. He, he is brutal to his son. Pointing out to him, don't you know that, I have, that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And so we find in Saul's anger that this is that Saul has made intention to kill David. So Jonathan gets up from the table, grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David, gets up from the table, goes out into the field, and he David is in that field. He takes a, a guy who's supposed to run and grab the arrows, a boy who's supposed to run and grab the arrows. He shoots the arrows. He, he does this code with David, communicating to him, you have to run. So they get together in one last moment after the boy who retrieved the arrows returned home. Then David and Jonathan hugged and they kissed and they wept. Kissed in a friendly way. You'll find actually that a lot of people, I mentioned this once before, a lot of people will use this to point to homosexuality in the Bible, which is just a total misreading of the story. That's a way of sexualizing friendship that should not be done. But David and Jonathan are best friends and so they hug and they weep together, they renew their promise, and then they depart. And so then David runs off, goes to, on his way, on his journey, he's got his servants with him, the guys in his army, he goes to the tabernacle, and he's hungry and he has no sword. So so chapter 21 tells the story of David going to the, the priest and saying, do you have any food at all? And the guy says, well, I have some of the holy bread. Are you sure that you guys can have it? And he's like, yes, give me anything. So he gives them the bread. And then he says, do you have a sword? And the the priest says, all I have is Goliath's sword. And David says, there is no sword like this sword. Give it to me. So then David goes off to the Philistines. The Philistines are, so Saul runs him off and wants to kill him. David runs to the very city of Goliath. So the Philistines are also concerned. The king is concerned. And so David has to act insane walking around, frothing at the mouth, just to make them think that he's not a threat. So then David leaves. His family comes out to him. He's outside the land of Israel. And then a prophet says, no, David, you need to go back to the land of Judah, back to the land of Israel. And then the story returns to Saul. And so here's the crisis point of the story. The crisis point of the story, chapter 22, verse 6, says that Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree and the hill at Gebeah with all of his officials standing at his side. And he said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. That is David. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. But there was one foreigner that was in Saul's court who had been there at the tabernacle. And so he tells Saul, David went to the tabernacle and the priests helped him. So Saul calls all of those priests to him. Eighty-five priests come to Saul and Saul says, 
Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech, that's the, the head priest, answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? He's your son-in-law, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household. Was that the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, and you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me says that the king's officials, his guards, were unwilling to kill the priests of the Lord. And so he turns to this foreigner, his name is Dog, and he says, kill them. And so he kills them. One of them is, and then he killed the children and the wives of all of the priests. And one of the priests runs off to David, and David says, the man who is, wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. And so what we find in this story, these three characters, David, Saul and Jonathan, but it's ultimately not a story about David. It's not ultimately a story about Saul. It's actually a story about Jonathan. It's a story with this comparison between Jonathan and Saul because God has selected David as the next king. And we see that Jonathan's choice was not just David. It was actually, I'm going to make God the high king and I will follow him even if it costs me my kingdom. We see that Saul says, no, kill the priests of the Lord because they've sided with David. It's this comparison. Jonathan, who's loyal to the Lord, David, or I'm sorry, and Saul, who is loyal only to his own kingdom. And what we find is that Jonathan chose, meaning to serve, to protect, to defend, and to prepare for David's kingdom. And Saul decided to serve and protect and defend and prepare only for his own kingdom. And what I want to show you here in this passage that the call in this passage is when we have to count the cost of discipleship, we are called to serve a higher king for a better kingdom. We are called from this story, from the life of Jonathan, to serve a higher king for a better kingdom. And I want to show you three actions when discipleship is hard. Three actions when the cost of discipleship is high. First, depend on the character of God. Depend on the character of God. What we see with Jonathan talks is he is constantly saying, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Jonathan is obsessed with God is up to something here. God is up to something here. He has this idea that the Lord is a warrior fighting for David, and it would be wrong for me to fight against that. When you look at Jonathan's words, almost every line starts with the Lord, before the Lord, the God of Israel. May the Lord, he's just constantly talking about the Lord, but then it gets very clear in verse 14 where he says, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I I may not be killed. This is a word that we find in the Bible translated sometimes compassion, loving kindness, kindness, unfailing kindness. But the, the best sense of this word is when I deserve nothing and I get everything. And so what... What Jonathan is banking on is that the character of God is that when I deserve nothing, I get everything. And so Jonathan banks everything on that. No cost of discipleship is too high if the character of God says, no, I am going to be constantly blessing and giving and giving and giving. That is what is motivating Jonathan's obedience and discipleship. 
And so the call, Jonathan, serve, protect, prepare, it's based on the loving kindness, the unfailing kindness of the Lord. And so when you and I look at life and go, God, the cost of this obedience is high. God, the cost of discipleship is really high. I don't know that I can keep going. The, 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 The call from Jonathan's life is to depend on the character of God saying, when I deserve nothing, I will get everything. And so I'm going to depend on that. I'm going to count the obedience is done in light of that. What I love so much is that he says, David, will you show me unfailing kindness as the Lord has shown unfailing kindness? But that's actually what Jonathan is doing, is showing unfailing kindness. He's asking that from David. He's saying, I get that from the Lord, but ultimately that's what David is showing because that is so deeply ingrained in his life, in the character of God. When we look in the Old Testament and other stories, like the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, a priest and a leader living far outside the land of Israel, when you read those books and they talk about the people of Israel returning and they pray, they're constantly praying, God, this is what your character is. God, this is what your character is, and so I am going to depend on that, and I'm going to pray in light of that. And that's the image that we get here in the life of Jonathan, is that when we pray, when we obey, when we look at our lives, the call is to go, this is the character of God. It's unfailing kindness. It certainly doesn't seem like it in the moment, because Jonathan is sacrificing his kingdom to do it, but well, I'm going to depend on the unfailing character of God to motivate my actions. And so, the call of discipleship is to look at your own life. And so where is God asking and calling me to difficult obedience? Parenting difficult children. Working a difficult job. Having dreams that are dashed. Where is God calling for obedience? And the call here is to say, no, look not just at this as a high cost, but the character of God is undergirding this call towards obedience. The second action when the cost of discipleship is high is to count the cost. Chapter 20, verse 16, Jonathan makes it clear that Jonathan has counted the cost of his discipleship. He knows this is going to cost me everything. Verse 16, he says, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. Jonathan has now banked everything on David becoming king, which means he's giving up his own kingdom. Saul raises the issue when he says, don't you know that your kingdom will never be established as long as David is alive? Jonathan knows that the cost means everything, and yet he's counted it and said, no, it's worth it. You see, it's so easy for you and I to go, oh, this is what God has called me to do, but I hope it can be easy. But what we see in the life of Jonathan is, no, sometimes we need to take a clear-eyed view. This is the cost of obedience, and it's going to be high. It's going to be so high. Jonathan knows, he says, the last time he sees David, he says, the Lord is the witness between you and me. The Lord is the witness between you and me. The Lord knows that I am going to work for your good, David, for the rest of my life. With everything that I have, I will count it as nothing And so when the God calls us to discipleship and to obedience, it's going to cost us. And we have to take a clear-eyed view and say, look, this is really the cost. Following Jesus is going to be hard. Because we cannot go with God and build our own kingdoms. We cannot go with God and just have things easy. 
We look at the life of, we look at Saul in this story, and Saul is like, no, I'm going to kill these priests because they've sided with David too. I think that that's such an interesting phrase that Saul uses there. I don't know if he's saying they've sided with David too, like my advisors. I don't know if he means they've sided with David too, like my son. What I suspect is that he's saying these priests of the Lord have sided with David too, just like God has. And I cannot abide that. You see, Saul has decided his kingdom is worth everything. The cost is too high to go with God, and so he's unwilling to pay that. And that's the story that we see most of the time in the Old Testament. When we look at the life of Ezekiel, when we look at Job, when we look at Elijah, when we look at Daniel, when we look at Hosea, it costs them everything. The story of the Bible is people who don't get happy, healthy, and wealthy. It's, it's people that count the cost and give that all up, losing dreams and reputation, making sacrifices because they've counted the cost and have said, no, God's kingdom is worth it. God's kingdom is worth it. And so we have to look at our lives and go, I have lots of dreams and there's lots of things that I would love to do, but I am willing to pay the price because this kingdom is worth it. And this is the third action. The third action when the cost of discipleship is hard is keep your eyes on the kingdom. Keep your eyes on the kingdom. You see, that's what Jonathan did in verse 15. He says, do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Jonathan was looking forward to a day that David's kingdom would be established forever. And that's where his eyes were. And that's why the cost was worth it. You see, we see it again in verse 42 when he says, the Lord has witnessed between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Jonathan's eyes were on forever, not just on what he could get out of his life. He was concerned about the kingdom that was going to come, and he wanted to be on that side, knowing that it was worth the cost. That's the thing that we saw in Hebrews chapter 11. As we walked through the, in the spring, we saw person after person who said, hey, I am going to fix my eyes on the kingdom forever, and I'm not going to take it off of that. I am going to count the cost, and I'm going to keep walking this path because God's kingdom is worth it. It will one day pay off in the end. And so Jonathan is a model for us asking us, what is your timeline? What is the timeline of the payoff? Are you like, it has to pay off this week, this month? It has to pay off these six months, this next year, this next five years? Or will we instead stand with Jonathan with our eyes on forever and say, no, it's worth the cost. I'm going to depend on the character of God. And I will pay this cost of discipleship. This sounds really good. But honestly, I have to have a change to do this kind of thing. This isn't how I naturally think. I'm not normally going, the character of God means that this difficulty is worth it. Oh, the cost of this is worth it because forever is coming. What can change us on the inside so that we can depend on the character of God when life is hard and the cost of discipleship seems too high? What can change us on the inside so that we count the cost and count it as nothing? Because we have our eyes on his kingdom. The thing that can do this is the fact that God doesn't just say, buck up and get it done. Instead, he actually comes as one of us depending on the character of God to the very last, as he says, Abba, Father, why have you forsaken me from the cross? He's the one that says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's the one that looks at 
the other thief on the cross and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is the one whose eyes were on the kingdom. The cost was worth it. He depended on the character of his father. So now, those of us that have repented of sin and trusted in Christ, this becomes not just our record, but also that becomes living in us so that we can depend on the character of God, not based on our merit, not based on our record, but based on his record. That we can count the cost and say that it's worth it because he counted the cost and said that it was worth it for us. We can keep our eyes on the kingdom because he kept his eyes on the kingdom for us. And so when the cost of discipleship is high, we can serve for a higher king and a better kingdom, fixing our eyes on there. Imagine what that would end up looking like in your life. What? What would it look like if the cost of discipleship began to be filtered through the character of God, the cost that God has called us to, and with the promise of a kingdom that will one day make all of it worth it? Imagine what it would look like for a community to be filled and seeded with people that live this way, depending on the character of God, saying hard things aren't too hard. No cost is too high because a kingdom is coming. Imagine what it would be like for our community to have people living in it, rubbing shoulders with other people day by day so that people go, oh, wow. There is a kingdom that's coming. and These people are living in it. These are people depending on the character of God. I want in on that. I want in on that. And so the call here is, will you serve a higher king for a better kingdom? counting the cost of discipleship, and keeping your eyes on the kingdom. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that you will help it sink into our hearts so that we know that you've paid the cost of discipleship for us, and now we get to walk in your obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you hear me say that, and you go, how can, how can you say that Jesus pays this cost for me? The story of the Bible is that God made the world, and he made it good. And that he made humans to be little kings under him. But Adam and Eve and every human after them said, no, I'm going to live in my own way, live in my own kingdom, doing my own thing. We are all Saul. The Bible says that God will one day punish his enemies, crush his enemies. Every rival king will be made low. But instead of leaving us there, Jesus came and lived the life that we should live, dying the death that we should die, and establishing David's kingdom forever so that everybody is welcome in who repents and trusts in Christ. Repenting of sin, turning away and saying, no, I won't be my own king. I'm not going to live my own way. I'm not going to do my own things. I'm going to take Jesus and Jesus alone. Then we are welcomed in, not just as citizens of the kingdom, but actually sons of the king with all of the rights of Jesus. So if you have questions about that, come and grab me. Come and grab me during the song. Grab me after the service. Grab somebody that brought you that you trust and you go, hey, I want what you have. I want in on this. I want Jesus. Let's sing now.